Today, I'm going to read an excerpt from a book called Ghost Belly by Elizabeth Hyman. It is a memoir of her experience and her thoughts when she lost her pregnancy. It is a really good book and it can be found on Amazon. It comes and goes on Amazon, though. If it's openly available or readily available, it runs about 30 bucks. If it's not so readily available, as with anything, supply and demand, the highest I've seen it on Amazon was about $100. But it is a really insightful book, and she did an amazing job on describing the thought process or what someone's thought process could be through her own experience in losing her child. The excerpt that I'm about to read is probably about midway through the book where she has already lost her child and she is in the hospital waiting for them to bring her child to her. It is her thoughts and her conversations with her midwife and her husband and a few other people that you'll hear the names of. But if you get a chance to get the book and read the entire book, it is very well written. So I would highly suggest it. Glenn and I are in our hospital room. It's dark outside and the blinds are shut tight. Opposite the bed is a dark wooden cabinet that houses a TV and above the TV cabinet is a clock. And just like we know that the TV doesn't matter because it's off and will stay off, we know that the clock matters a great deal. The clock on the wall ticks loudly and reminds us that time is short. It's 520 on the morning of November 12, 2008. Glenn is holding Thor biting his lip, looking down at him. This is the only 520 we'll get with our baby. I sit propped up by pillows in the hospital bed, same bed where the blue hordes palpated my belly, the same bed where I argued with the medical examiner. To the right and behind me is the counter where the nurses stacked their papers and prepared their medications, but no one stands there now. The nurses have gone. They have gone because we have Thor and they know we won't have him for long. They will let my next blood draw, my next blood pressure check, wait until after he is gone. Only three people remain in the room, and of the three, only two are alive. But we must will ourselves to imagine that Thor is still with us, that he has a glimmer of life not yet completely extinguished. He must be one of the three people present for this scene, not an inert prop. We try hard to imagine. We suspend disbelief. This will be our entire lifetime with our child. When they bring Thor to me, I feel all of the tension of the last hour slip out of the room like a sigh. Finally, we've arrived at our destination. This is our destination. I can hold Thor in my arms. This is what I've been waiting for for nine months. This is what's been imminent since I went into labor a few hours earlier. This is the moment that was delayed because of all sorts of other things that have gotten in the way. The EMT taking Thor downstairs to the kitchen, the ambulance ride, the light blue hordes palpating on my belly, Glenn going to see Thor separately, having to argue with the man from the medical examiner's office. But finally, finally, 
the moment has arrived, I can have Thor. There is something terribly elemental about this moment, about looking forward to it in a few minutes between my conversation with the boss from the medical examiner's office and the time they bring Thor. Something so elemental that even death doesn't get in the way. Thor was inside me and is now rightfully outside. He is outside, but he belongs in my arms, cradled naked against my breast, just a rib cage away from where he's been curled up for all those months. Once upon a time, stillborn babies were whisked away and their parents didn't even get to see them. But now hospitals have changed their practice and the parents can have and hold their stillborn babies and say goodbye. No one seems to have thought of the fact that first the parents have to say hello. Perhaps that's why they think half an hour is enough. But we have six. Thor will not change in those six hours. He will not be freshly born when I get him, then six hours old when I give him back. He will not be awake, then asleep. He will not be unwashed, then washed, first hungry, then sated, first crying, then content, then crying again. He will be exactly the same at the end of the six hours as he was at the beginning. Just a little cooler, a little stiffer, but we weren't thinking about all of that. And so the six hours will be a moment, not an expanse of time, but it will be a moment that will stretch out like silly putty that resists snapping as you stretch it farther and farther. And even though you know it won't stretch forever, for the moment, what's amazing is that it stretches as far as it does. This is what I want to do in those six hours. To take that moment in which Thor will not grow six hours older and inhabit it fully. Fully absorb Thor because this will be our only chance. And because this is so important, other things can wait. Like crying. Like thinking about Thor's absence. I will have a lifetime to explore Thor's absence. Every inch of it to acquaint all of my senses with it, to inhabit it. Anytime we spend crying now, bewailing his death, will be time lost to things like singing to him, touching him, things we only have a few hours to do. Thor's absence will not last just a moment, not even a stretched out moment. It will occupy time. First he will be dead a day, then a week, then a month, then a year. I will have the rest of my life to explore it. And its exploration will require the rest of my life. But the time to explore Thor's absence is not now. Now is the time to absorb Thor's presence. I have no script for this time, no instructions, but I know what to do. I touch him. I touch his face, his narrow cheeks, his hard brow. I use the tips of my index fingers. I cradle the back of his head and move my hand down and feel the curve of his skull. I trace the hump in his chin, starting from the tape that holds the intubating tube in his mouth. I continue down his long throat to his collarbone. I support him with my left arm. I use my right hand to pull the blanket away from his chest. I fill my hands with him. 
I spread out my fingers, making my hands as big as I can. One on his back, the other across his chest and stomach. My hands do not meet because this is a big baby. I try another hold. One hand on each side of Thor's head, fingers overlapping in the back. Now I have a feel for his head and his torso. My hands rest. They will want to remember these proportions. I unfold the rest of the blanket. I see the stump of umbilical cord, brown with pieces of gauze held in place with a clamp. I see the small, uncircumcised penis, the wrinkled, dark scrotum. I see how fat his thighs are, and then I turn him around to see if the buttocks from which they extend are equally fat. The lower legs look slim in comparison. Pegs protrude from the shins, the pegs that were to deliver medicine directly to the bone because the veins were too small. I must be careful of those pegs. His feet are wrinkled and crusty with yellowish meconium. I hold Thor under his arms so his feet rest on my lap as if he were standing. I support his head. I see that Thor's eyes are half open. He looks like he's looking at me. I meet his gaze. I tell him with my eyes how much I love him. I lean my brow against his brow, my nose against his nose. I close my eyes. I breathe in. I smell his smell. It's earthy, bloody, unwashed. I lift him higher until my nose is buried in his neck. I smell him again, inhaling deeply. I sit Thor on my lap. I tell him that he is my beautiful, beautiful baby. I tell him that I loved him and that I will always love him. I caress his cheek and tell him the same thing. I kiss his face and say it again. I invite Glenn over with my eyes. I hold Thor up so Glenn can take him. I watch how Glenn cradles Thor as he stands, how he looks down at him, thick brows arched. We talk about Thor, about how big he is, about how his eyes are open. We let that conversation falter. I follow Glenn with my eyes as he sits down by my bed. We hold Thor together. I put my face to Thor's as Glenn does the same on the other side. We close our eyes. We breathe deeply. I pull back as Glenn takes Thor's hand. He slips his finger into the hollow between Thor's curled fingers and the palm of his hand. I look at the wrinkles on the back of Thor's tiny fingers with their fingernails already gone purple. The solidity and straightness of Glenn's big finger. I take Thor back. I sing a song to him that I make up as I go along, a song with few notes and few words, but which goes on for a long time. I rock Thor as I sing to him. I look into Thor's eyes. I realize suddenly what his eyes are saying to me. He is asking why he has died. He is saying he had looked forward to meeting me. He knew my warmth and my voice from inside. He wanted to feel my arms and my lips once he was outside. He wanted to see me. He thought that coming out would be the beginning, not the end. I am his mother. 
He doesn't know who else to ask. His mouth is covered with tape. This is what stays with me about those hours with Thor. His heft burned into the muscles of my arms, matching the heft that was in my belly. The softness of his cheek against my rough fingers. His smell thick in my nostrils following the flow of cool air that bends to travel downward, high in the back of my throat. The solidity of his back against my splayed hand. The fine hairs on the top of his head under my thumbs. His eyes half closed. His eyes boring into mine thoughts that his voice could not utter. Not even a scream or whimper. It was a magical time because I had Thor and I was not yet grieving him. Because I was in his presence, not his absence. But when I stopped to think about that morning, I know that we were not alone the whole time. Deidre and Jeannie came in early, and in my mind's eye, I see them sitting on the sofa uncomfortably forward, hands folded on their knees. They look very far away, though the sofa is just a few feet from the bed under the window with the blinds pulled tight. I'm propped up in my hospital bed. Thor lies curled in my left arm. My right hand rests lightly on the back of his head. He is mine. Mine. I asked Deidre what happened. I asked Deidre what happened. A sudden placenta abruption, I'm pretty sure, is what she said. Your placenta separated from your uterine wall. That would explain the bleeding. What happens then is the baby no longer gets oxygen. Its adrenaline shoots up because it senses danger. It empties its bowels and then tries to breathe because its lungs are mature and know how to get oxygen. But instead, they get feces-filled meconium. He suffocated. I do not remember Jeannie saying anything. I do not remember any other part of the conversation. But I assume Deidre must have asked if we wanted them to stay around. And we said no, and so they left. I do remember that Deidre stopped at my bed bent over, kissed my forehead, and slipped away. I remember that someone from the medical examiner's office came in and asked me to tell them the sequence of events of the evening. I told him calmly with Thor laying on my chest. My memory of the birth was clear. He asked if Glenn had anything to add. I don't remember Glenn saying anything. Someone, maybe a nurse or social worker, asked if we wanted to see a chaplain, and if so, which chaplain? Glenn and I stared dumbly at each other. We were both atheists. But echoes of our rituals from childhood still sounded in our heads. I said, let's have them come. I don't want to not do it and then regret that we didn't have this one little bit of ritual. We asked for the Protestant chaplain and the rabbi. When the rabbi arrived, slight and well-trimmed white beard, a flicker of recognition crossed his face. He knew me from around town, knew that I was in some way Jewish, knew that I had nothing to do with the Jewish community. I felt guilty having dragged him to the hospital at six in the morning for such a bad Jew, one whose dead baby lay on his back on a blanket in his mother's lap, limbs sprawled over her legs, testes dark and prominent. After the Methodist pastor recited her blessing, the rabbi murmured his service in rapid-fire Hebrew, saying, Speak with me, 
and a handful of other iterations of Shama. I mumbled along, by now no longer in the bed, but seated in the reclining chair. Glenn asked the nurse to take a picture of us when it was over. And when I look at the picture now, I see the rabbi and the pastor struggling between smiling reflexively for the camera and their habit of wearing somber expressions in the presence of death. I imagine they wondered what exactly we were after. A social worker who specialized in organ and tissue donation came in to ask if we wanted to donate Thor's heart valves. With infants, she told us, that was the only possible donation. Everything else was too small. Yes, we told her, we wanted to donate Thor's heart valves. I held Thor in my arms, felt his skin against mine. There was some question about eligibility for donation since I traveled frequently to Europe, so perhaps his heart valves would transmit mad cow disease. The social worker came back later in the morning telling us that the heart valves would be accepted. Months later, we learned that they had gone to a baby in North Carolina. We didn't learn any details about the baby who got them, though I wish we had. I do not remember what the social worker looked like, even though Glenn and I liked her. She seemed like a grown-up. I do remember what Beth the night nurse looked like. She was young and short and had very smooth skin. She had dark curly hair to her chin. When Beth's shift was over, she buried her face in my shoulder and cried. It was her first death. Labor and delivery nurses don't expect to deal with death. Labor and delivery is supposed to be a happy ward. If you work oncology, then you steal yourself to deal with death. I patted Beth's back and comforted her. I was old enough to be her mother. Was Thor on my lap during this time or in Glenn's arms? I don't remember. Thor in my arms, his weight against my chest, his cheek against mine as I nod and listen to the social worker tell me that only the heart valves can be donated. The heart valves at the moment are about level to my shoulder. Thor seated upright in my lap, leaning against my belly, my arms crossed across his chest, my hand grasping his wrist, playing a sort of patty cake as I recount for the man from the medical examiner's office the last evidence of Thor's having been alive. The heartbeat Deidre heard on her first visit. My arms and my chest and my heart and my gut and everything from the collarbone down enveloping Thor. My brain and my ears and my mouth and everything from the chin up, talking with the nurse, the social worker, the medical examiner, whatever adult wanted something from me. My throat struggling in between to voice the words I needed to say to the staff, to sing or murmur to Thor. My throat tightening and choking from the conflict. I'll end there and allow you to pick up where I left off. But first, you'd have to start from the beginning. Again, the book Ghost Belly by Elizabeth Heinemann. A really good understanding into what goes on to a bereaved mother who has lost their child that they were expecting to give birth to. It's a very good read, and I hope that you decide to pick up the book and read it if it's in your price range or Maybe check it out at the library because for some reason I forget about checking out books at the library. 
I think that has a lot to do with COVID and not being able to go outside for so long that I'm just used to buying whatever I need because I need it and I can't go get it. And I probably couldn't give it back if I wanted to. But anyway, I hope that you enjoyed or got some understanding from the excerpt that I read. 